Hello to all students, uh, faculty, staff here at Tyndale Seminary. Just want to thank you for tuning in into this chapel. Um, I have my makeshift video set up here uh, in my basement. You might hear some kids running around and screaming and yelling. Uh, it's a normal thing here in my home. My name is Jesse Sedirgo. Um, I'm a new faculty here. I just started in uh, 2019 uh, in the summertime and I've been really honored and blessed to be in this place. And so I just want to share a little bit for this uh, chapel. And so for those who don't know me, um, in beginning uh, my year last year, um, it was a pretty major year for me, actually. Uh, I had a lot of milestones uh, that occurred this past year. For one, I, I got this job, which is something I didn't anticipate to get, which I'm very thankful to have. Um, also, last year, I got a home and after I got this job, two weeks after, I had my third child. Um, a child who's, who's healthy, who's chubby, really cute kid. So anyways, a lot of things happened um, this past year and I felt extremely um, blessed. But at the same time, uh, the scary thing about it is I actually never felt so much in control uh, of my life before. And in that moment, of feeling in control out of nowhere. I just, I started to feel um, a lot of these fears and anxiety that just kind of came upon me. And it wasn't just like these feelings here and there. It actually came in, in the form of anxiety attacks. I actually, uh, my wife is a psychologist, so she um, uh, often diagnoses me uh, without me asking her to. And anyway, so it, it, it was literally manifesting in anxiety. I couldn't sleep at night. I had all of these um, dreams that are happening that I couldn't control. Um, and it was quite a difficult time, actually. And um, the best example is I was listening to Brene Brown, who is the one person who talks about vulnerability and all these TED Talks and all these different places. Um, she's just that, she's a vulnerability queen. Anyway, so she said this term one time called foreboding joy. And foreboding joy, she described it as the moment where you're holding your child uh, so tightly and you're like, oh, I love my kids so much. And it's that very moment that you say that is the moment that you feel like, oh, what if, I, what if my kid dies? And you start to feel terror uh, of this feeling that you're going to lose uh, something that you love so much. And so um, when you imagine these horrible scenarios and all that stuff, that's what I was experiencing night after night after night. And it was something that kept me up and, and, and impacted uh, my health, my breathing, and all these different things in my life. And so all this I, I want to bring to our passage today in Matthew 16, 25, where uh, it's, a, it's a key verse for me this past year as a result of all these things that I was experiencing and how I'm processing this. It says, um, for whoever wants to save their life, will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. Although as a Christian, and I grew up as a Christian myself, um, it's easy to say that, you know, oh, it's ridiculous uh, that we can save our life. You know, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. I'm, even though we can say that uh, verbally and we can cognitively believe it, um, what I've realized is that my operative theology or like what this is something that we use in our program. It's like the theology that we actually uh, live out that 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 theology living out day to day, my day to day actions tell me that I actually do think that I am the one who saves my life or my family's life. You know, I lean heavily on my insurance plans. You know, I 
I, I buy security systems uh, for my home in order to, to, to protect it from people. I make contingency plans after contingency plans to ensure that my precious family will be safe. Uh, so the notion of losing my life to find it is nice and dandy when it comes to the abstract or my cognitive thinking, um, but it's actually terrifying uh, when actualized in real life. You know, there's a lot of fear and anxiety, as you know, going around in our society uh, amidst all this uh, that is happening in our world. And, um, and I believe it has everything to do with this dichotomy between scarcity and abundance. The dichotomy between scarcity and abundance, which is what I want to talk about today. Because I've come to realize that when, it, when one becomes accustomed uh, to living in the assumption of abundance, of having, um, we, we become illiterate when it comes to living in a world of scarcity as we are living in to, today or feeling like we are living in today. You know, we make irrational and reactionary uh, decisions like stocking up on toilet paper or uh, ridding grocery shelves from, uh, with, uh, of pasta, pasta sauces. I mean, it, it's, it's an odd thing, right, that's happening. And why? Why are we doing this? There's enough of this to go around. And, and I actually, I, I, I compare it, uh, these odd societal reactions to scarcity, you know, and, and you'll know these types of people. These are the types of people who buy all the fancy gadgets and, and, and camping gear uh, before they go into the, to the wilderness or just like, you know, to Sybil Point or some kind of uh, camping ground over there. They buy all these things. They do the whole glamping kind of setup. Um, and, and when I mean those people, I actually mean myself uh, because I am very much that type of person. If you ask my family and friends, they will say how ridiculous uh, it is for me to buy certain things. It's because uh, I can't survive in the wilderness. I would uh, fall apart <laughs> myself. I literally actually bought a smokeless um, fire pit on Kickstarter that allows me uh, to be able to burn a fire and it just sucks up the smoke before it, 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 it gets around. Uh, and it actually, this smokeless fire pit actually uh, electronically blows oxygen onto the flame so that I don't need to exert uh, the effort to fan the flame myself. And it's pretty bad, right? Like to the point where um, my, my child, my six-year-old kid, when we were putting out the fire pit just the other day, um, is talking to me and, and, and saying, hey dad, did you, uh, did you charge the battery for us to, um, to start the fire? Because um, in her mind, she thinks that you need to have a battery in order to start a fire. It's, it's ridiculous. Anyway, so imagine someone like me um, in the wilderness without my fancy uh, fire pit or gear uh, to start a fire. And I have to use natural resources um, out there in the woods. See, just imagine that. That's what we're seeing um, right now. That's how ridiculous it is in our society. And so in order to frame what I'm talking about today, there's this great book called um, The Company of Strangers by Parker Palmer that I, that I used in my course recently. And it, and it gives us the backdrop to how events are currently unfolding right now, even though it was not made um, for this event. And so generally, just to give you a picture, this, this, this book generally talks um, uh, about and encouraging the, the church and urging the church to have a greater investment into the pub, public common life. He makes this key distinction between um, public life and private life. The, the public life, uh, which can be described as, you know, the public square, uh, you know, the park bench, um, it's the function of the government 
uh, and how they organize the in-between spaces of these private spheres. Um, it is community organizations, it's sidewalks. It's basically uh, the places where strangers can cross paths. And on the other hand, you have the private life. The private life is your home. Right? It's, it's, your, it's your family, it's your friends, it's people that you call up in order to go uh, get a, grab a coffee, it's, it's your church. And, and, and with, this division, uh, with this division, Palmer makes the assumption that as churches continue to lose its place of honor uh, in society, which we can see very clearly has or is happening here uh, in Canada, um, the church has secluded itself more and more into the private sphere, or some would argue that they've been pushed into the private sphere, no longer uh, required into the public um, arena, no longer, for example, occupying key real estate in the city core, which it was very much in the city, uh, a staple in there is no longer there. It's actually all, all churches now are migrating into uh, industrial buildings, uh, and just off into the suburbs, uh, separated from residential areas, areas uh, appearing less and less relevant to public life and political discourse, unless, of course, you're talking about key hot-button moral issues uh, that we choose to, to speak on. And subsequently, we're becoming more obscure and suspect to secular society. And so rather uh, than urging the church to put on, like, camo outfits and, um, and subversively penetrate uh, the various crevices of the unchurched world with the message of the gospel alone, Palmer um, calls the church to unapologetically be the odd upside down community it was meant to be right there in broad daylight, you know, um, just uh, transparently laying out its agenda to the world, hiding nothing, yet at the same time, Embodying, embodying a life and embodying a distinctive, a taste that is, um, that is so attractive and radical um, that it would seem illogical for the public life uh, not to incorporate um, the church's contribution into uh, the way of its operation. That governments would see that churches contribute a great deal to the social fabric of a neighborhood. That agency would recognize the deep commitment the body of Christ has to walking alongside the poor. That businesses would recognize the investment churches contribute to the vibrancy of the economy. So back to me, uh, just imagining me there in the woods attempting to uh, start a fire. Uh, Parker Palmer states this, and I quote, he says, when there is plenty to go around, uh, life in the public is pleasant. Let me end quote here. He says basically that he even alludes to it before he says that um, democracy only really thrives in, in, in abundance, when there's abundance, but in scarcity, it, it tends to fall apart. And I say, and I quote again, he says, but today with real scarcity in some areas and the fear of scarcity in others, private comfort is threatened and public life becomes threatening, especially to those who are unaccustomed to scarcity and to fighting for what they need, end quote. And then he goes on to say, and I quote, private solutions tend to exasperate public problems. And we can see it happening all over today. He says this, hoarding diminishes the general supply. 
Private health insurance allows medical costs to keep rising. The fortress approach to crime. The fortress approach is like a lot of security systems, a lot of walls. Um, that approach to crime further isolates individuals from the public connectedness, which could curb crime. Like that if we can see our streets, then perhaps less crime would occur in that situation. Private solutions to public Private solutions to the problem of scarce resources only make the resources scarcer." End quote. And with reference, actually, to this passage in Matthew 16 of losing our life to find it, Palmer exhorts us by stating that, and I quote, "...there is a direct relation between our state of spiritual awareness, our awareness of God's abundance, and our ability to respond to scarcity in the public realm. The gospel sees abundance where the world sees scarcity, and scarcity where the world sees abundance. Such faith can help us sustain us in public life, since we often retreat from public into private spheres to gather and protect abundance for ourselves. But in gathering material abundance, we will find spiritual scarcity while in sharing material scarcity with the larger community, we discover spiritual abundance." End quote. If there's any community um, out there that should be giving generously uh, amidst a recession, it's the church. Our generosity should not be built upon the assumption of abundance. It's quite the opposite, right? Actually, if you look at that, that passage, that image of Jesus there sitting opposite of the place where the offerings be, were being put uh, and the crowds of people were coming, and, and he, see, he sees actually many rich people throwing large amounts uh, inside, but then he notices this poor woman that came with just two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. He says, and Jesus calls his disciples together, he says, Truly I tell you, this poor woman has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their abundance, their wealth. But she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. When I read this, I wonder about how much of our ministry approach and strategies are built upon the assumption of abundance. How do we fall apart when we actually don't have extra cash in the bank? It's telling about the condition of the church and our spirituality. And I'm not saying that as a condemnation because I experience it every single day. You know, my weekly, if not daily, meditation this past year has been to resist the strong force I have felt to save my life because it's a real force. It's a force that, is, that, for, that urges me to be the one who holds all the pieces in place. It's a real threat. It's a real feeling that constantly comes wave after wave to the point that I was just telling my, my class the other day that even though it's been my you know, year passage, uh, this saving your life to lose it, all that kind of stuff has been very prominent in my mind. This past month of this pandemic, suddenly I'm the one who feels the need to save my life uh, in order um, uh, I need to save it. I'm the one who needs to be the one who does that. And then suddenly I'll hear this passage or I'll read it in my journal again and be like, oh yeah, like that was a revelation I had. How, come I, how can I forget it so quickly? And as I hear it again and it feels like a revelation, it's so, it feels so new because I've forgotten it so quickly that past week. So with this passage in mind, I'm reminded and I want to encourage us today to yoke ourselves with Christ, to aspire for the burdens to be light and easy.
You can't just tell someone in this time, and I'm not going to tell this to you here, to dig deeper into themselves, to muster up the will to endure. You don't tell frontline workers or medical professionals uh, to continue to just like muster it up inside of them. Our human wells only go so deep. There's only so much water to draw upon in our mortal bodies. So how incredible it is, how amazing it is for us to be in communion with a power outside of ourselves, to be able to draw our perseverance and our strength from a God who himself um, faced hardships and pain. And let me tell you, there's an integrity. There is a substance behind a believer's claim to perseverance because we lean on a Savior who endured the cross, who's scorning its shame. Like we have that type of God. And he's the one living inside of us, substantiating any claim for us to endure and persevere. How wonderful it is for us to draw upon that well. So through the process I've gone through personally um, with this particular passage, I have found myself focusing less on the imperative to lose your life, Jesse. You know, lose your life to find it. You know, surrender your life. Um, Just give it up. Because that doesn't really work, you know, to kind of just keep telling myself to surrender, surrender. It doesn't work to do that. You have to know who you're surrendering to do. So rather, I'm trying to, as much as possible, day to day, to fix my eyes more on the who. Who is doing the saving when it comes uh, to my life? Because losing my life doesn't mean it won't be saved. Uh, It just means that I won't be the one doing the saving, thank goodness, right? I mean, once control is in my hands, I'm terrified because it is scary to be responsible for a family. It's scary to be responsible for just living my life. How relieving it is to be able to give that to God. And And my friends, that is where we find our true rest. That's where we can find the peace that surpasses all understanding. Because when we quit trying to save our life, we will find ourselves with more time and space to find it, to find our life. And so, and so I just close today with students and faculty, staff, uh, just encourage you to fix your eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith. And that's keyword perfecter or finisher of our faith because he continues what we cannot continue on on our own. And we have such a wonderful God to draw upon. And when we live in that abundance and we know that abundance, it'll encourage us to contribute to this public square. It'll encourage us to sacrifice a lot in the midst of poverty or in the midst of scarcity um, to needs in our society so that the world will see the beauty and distinctive of the body of Christ rising to the occasion as it has done many times in the past. And so let's take this challenge to us today and live in the abundance of Christ, uh, knowing that he's got our back and that he can sustain us.